Kia I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. NPR Shanghai correspondent Rob Schmitz has created an unforgettable portrait of modern China through the eyes of an array of real-life people living along a single street in Shanghai in his book Street of Eternal Happiness. From Zhao, the shopkeeper, to Auntie Fu, a fervent capitalist, and musician and cafe owner CK, here are stories that provide a tale of 21st century China, its multi-layered past and the influence of the state on individual dreams. He speaks with Guy Espina about his life as a foreign correspondent in the streets of Shanghai in a session supported by the Asia New Zealand Foundation. No mai, haere mai, piki mai, kāke mai, nā mihi o te ahihahi. Ko nā ko hātū whakarekareka o tamatea pōkai whenua tōku maunga. Ko moana nui aki wa tōku moana. Ko wai makariri tōku awa. Nō utou tāhi a hau. Ko gai anespana tōku ingoa. Kei ti mahi a hau i te reo, e rangi wā o te aroa. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Kia ora, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you so much for coming. And welcome to Rob Schmitz for joining us. Thank you very much, Rob. Rob is the author of the beautiful book with the fabulous name, Street of Eternal Happiness, Big Dreams Along a Shanghai Road. Now, Rob immersed himself in Shanghai, in a Shanghai neighborhood, and forged relationships there with the ordinary people who strive and dream for a better future. And through these dreams, through their stories, the histories that is woven into this Rob begins to untangle the fiendishly complex and rich reality of 21st century China. Thank you so much, Rob, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful book. Um, I want to start simply by asking you what it is and why you wrote it. Uh, well, so this book comes from, uh, uh, I'm a radio correspondent in China. I work for National Public Radio. And at, when, I, when I arrived uh, to Shanghai in 2010, uh, I was a correspondent for Marketplace, which is an economics program. And um, I was constantly having a struggle with the time-space continuum in China because time moves at an accelerated pace in China. You have 30 years of unprecedented economic growth, which makes things move much faster. Um, no other civilization in the history of this planet has seen the changes uh, in such a short amount of time that China has seen in the last 30 years. And covering this was, was very challenging. I was the only correspondent uh, to cover China's economy, an uh, economy of 1.3 uh, billion people. And it's sort of like, you know, I've, I've said this before, it's, it's sort of like uh, trying to uh, photograph a Formula One race with a Polaroid camera. You, you, you can take a picture and you know, you comes, the picture comes out and you've just got a blur. And you, you need, there's nothing, so by the, and by the time you've taken the picture, things have moved on and changed. And that's what it kind of was like reporting on, on China because you would cover a story and things would change as you were reporting it and you, you had to put it out and then by the time it was out, things would change so quickly anyway. And I wanted to, so, so the genesis of this book was that, and the series that I did that the book was, was you know, stemmed from, 
was that I wanted to slow down the pace a little of, of my journalism. And I felt like in order to do that, I needed to justify to my editors uh, why I was doing this. Uh, and so I had this pitch. I said, well, I'd, I, you know, I, I'd like to spend uh, a year, uh, I'll still do our work, that, you know, the, the news work that we do at, at the, you know, for, for the program, but what I would like to do is every month for the next year, I would like to profile a single person who lives on, uh, on the same street uh, and lives or works on the same street in Shanghai. Um, conveniently, it was a street that I lived on uh, because I was so busy, I didn't really have time to be moving anywhere to do this. Um, but the idea was to slow things down a little, to focus on what I felt were the most important things in China, which were the people uh, of China and the individuals. What kind of things were they going through? How were they dealing with this economic change? Uh, what were their motivations? And, and how did they make things happen for themselves? What were their dreams? Uh, and how were they trying to accomplish those dreams? And so the, the series, and we weren't sure if the series would really work. Um, and I was, I was most scared that the series would just be one same story after another, and it would just be kind of boring after a while. But what I found is when I started reporting these stories, um, because of the pace of change, no matter who you talk to, whether they were young, whether they were in their 90s, or, or, or whether you know, they were middle-aged, everyone was almost befuddled by what was happening around them. And they were trying to make sense of this as well, just like me. Uh, and in some ways, they were more confused than I was. And their backgrounds uh, were these mis mishmashes of, of drama, of you know, many of them was almost Shakespearean, kind of tragic comic drama that you would find. Uh, all sorts of very, very interesting stories that as I, as I started to report them, um, I realized that I had something that was pretty good, that was really interesting. And it was almost, it was almost, uh, like a novel, you know, in, in the way that it unfolded with some of these, with some of these characters. And so um, we, I got some interest uh, among publishers in the U.S. who, who, who started to, to email me saying, you know, you should put this into a book. Some of these characters are fascinating. Yeah. And, and uh, so that's how the book was born. And let's talk about some yeah. of them because we meet C.K. Uh, in one of your uh, initial stories, a, a wonderful character. He's trying to make a go of a sandwich shop and he's selling, he's got the sideline gig selling accordions. Um, <laughs> which is great. Yeah, only, only in China can you sell sandwiches and accordions <laughs> on the side. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, CK, I mean, it, it, you know, this is how confusing this is. So, so CK is in his uh, 30s when I meet him. He was born in the 1980s. Um, he had a very tough childhood, uh, born in an industrial center in the middle of the country, um, very difficult parents, parents who, a, a father especially, that was trying to control him as much as uh, he could uh, control his path because it was his only son, uh, which is a typical uh, conflict, I think, uh, among that generation of Chinese, the, the one-child generation. And CK's life is really kind of defined, and, and I think every character in this book, their lives are defined by something outside of them trying to impose some sort of control over them, whether it's the state or whether it's the family. And in CK's, it was the family. 
And his reaction to that was to escape, to leave. Um, and he left to, he studied hard, he left to, to a university outside, very far away from his hometown, uh, studied the accordion, and uh, got a job at a state-owned factory that manufactured accordions, hated that job because he saw that in the state-owned industry, at least, um, it was too comfortable. You, people were uh, not really working very hard and they weren't trying to improve themselves. And he was young and he wanted to learn as much as he could and he felt like he learned everything he could in about a month. And he left, he just quit, much to his parents' uh, you know, disagreement. Came to Shanghai and started working for an Italian accordion maker who had just arrived uh, who wanted to set up an assembly line to make European accordions and taught CK how to assemble and disassemble an accordion from scratch. CK then taught uh, migrant workers how to do this on an assembly line and then he became the sales vice president, uh, started making a lot of money, uh, more money than an average American at that time, which was a lot in, in Shanghai. Uh, and then uh, with his money, started a sandwich shop after being inspired by a trip to Chicago where he visited a sandwich shop. <laughs> it's uh, sort of like, you know, someone going to China and starting up a noodle shop in Auckland because they went to a noodle shop or something. Um, and the sandwich shop obviously does not do well because it's a pretty terrible idea. And uh, it's on the second floor of, of, of this kind of this building and no one sees it. And, uh, but he doesn't care at all because it's not really, he doesn't, he doesn't really want to make money. He's, he set it up because he wants uh, young people like him to come in and share their ideas and he basically just wants his friends to hang out there. And that's sort of what happens, but he, he's always on the phone selling accordions anyway. So, um, so I meet him at this point in his life where he's a little, rec he's a little restless. He's, he's got this failing business uh, he's still making a lot of money on the, with the accordion thing, and he is partying and kind of going out a lot. He's got one girlfriend after another. He's living hard and fast. And he's looking for something that I think he had looked for since he was a child, to get away from the control of his father, to achieve some sort of uh, liberation or freedom. And uh, the thing that he finds is, is religion. He, he finds a, a master, a Buddhist master, uh, outside of Shanghai, uh, and he starts to change his life in that respect. And, and um, this happened as I was uh, you know, hanging out with him. I hung out with him for about three or four years. And in the second year, he began to do this. And so I thought this was a really interesting development. And so I followed this, um, and the book sort of goes in that in that direction, but I feel like he really is a good representation of a lot of young people in China today who are looking for something beyond uh, material wealth because, you know, for, I originally came to China 21 years ago when I came to China as a Peace Corps volunteer in rural China uh, living in, in Sichuan province. Uh, China at that time was poor. Uh, it still is poor uh, in many places in China, but the entire country was poor. Everyone made the same amount of money. And there was one dream in China at that time. It was a very unified dream, and that dream was to make money. Uh, now, uh, many people have accomplished that dream, and I think that they're dreaming about things that go beyond that. Uh, they're dreaming about liberation, personal freedom. They're dreaming about religion. They're, they're dreaming about getting their kids into good colleges abroad. 
um, and dreams are spreading out like wildfire. And it's a very exciting time right now because of that. In, in many of your stories, there's a real conflict between the generations too. Like CK, his parents would have been born in, in what, the 50s, about the time of, uh, yeah. of the uh, Communist Party coming to power, I think 1949. Um, and profound changes um, b between those generations and a real conflict because of that. Yeah, and, and, that, that, uh, th and that makes life in China very interesting, I think, for young Chinese. Interesting is a, is a polite word. It makes it absolutely frustrating uh, because I, I think that no Chinese under the age of 35 or so, I think, would have anything really in agreement with their parents uh, because those two generations are so different. The worldview is so different that um, many young people, and I, I hear this so, many, so much from young people in China, they always pretend to listen to their parents because if you don't, your parents will just kind of fuss over you so much that it'll just be completely annoying. So they, they have this dual life where they, they go home, they pretend that they're listening to their parents, they, they leave the, the, the house, and then they do whatever else they want to do. You know, they, they don't follow any of their parents' advice because their parents' advice is terrible usually, because their parents' advice is based on a different China yeah. that is shared, no longer there. experience. Yeah, and, and so, and there's, there are other characters in my book that embody this pretty well. Um, there are, so there are five characters in this book. One of the other characters is this older couple who are in this generation, who grew up, were born around 1949, the birth of, of communist China. Um, they grew up sort of being tossed from one factory to another, and they, they were in Xinjiang and up in the northwestern part of China uh, as part of this uh, colonizing force in that area, and then they moved back to Shanghai. But when they moved back to Shanghai, they were in their 50s, and China had completely changed. Um, it was no longer uh, the state-commanded economy that they had grown up with. Um, they no longer had to take orders. Nothing was decided for them anymore. And they were forced to make their own decisions about how they would make their money. So someone in that situation, by the time you're in your 50s, uh, you can't take that. that that's that's uh, something that's very difficult to handle. So these characters, uh, it's a married couple, Uncle Fung and Auntie Fu. Uncle Fung sells scallion pancakes outside of his kitchen window. Uh, and Auntie Fu is his, his wife, and, and um, she gets involved. So he makes money by, by really working, and, and, and they're, and, and these two constantly argue. And, and so when I'm with them, at first I thought it was me, but it wasn't me at all. They, they just, like, when I'm with them, they constantly are screaming at each other, and there's terrible screaming matches. But this is just how they operate, and this is just how they live. And, and their conflict is almost like this greater conflict of China, of someone, uh, of this idea that you work hard, uh, you know, and, and, and socialist China was a good China, and, and as long as you work hard, you're going to make what you can make. And this other idea that there are riches to be made, uh, it is a precious time, you gotta go make money right now. Auntie Fu uh, then uh, is this woman in her, who's in her 60s who uh, goes to one pyramid scheme meeting after another, uh, <laughs> trying to uh, make money as fast as possible. And so she drags me because she thinks that she can probably con me into doing this. She, she drags me into all these pyramid scheme meetings 
which are absolutely fascinating. And, and some of these meetings are just incredible. There, there's these older folks that are sort of, they're all conning each other. And they're all involved in all of these elaborate schemes to make money, none of which really work, and they're losing all their pension. Um, and, and so she comes home, and of course, Uncle Fung hates what she's doing because he sees this as the fraud that it is. And so they just, uh, they go at it. And the first time I was allowed into their living room, because they have a one-bedroom apartment, um, as I got to know them, I, I, I went in there. The only item of value that they had in this living room, when I walked in, I looked, there were two televisions side by side. <laughs> and I, I looked at Auntie Fu and I said, what's this? She says, well, you don't know us well enough, do you? She says, we can't agree on anything to watch. <laughs> and whenever I visit them later, sure enough, they both had both televisions on watching a different program at the highest volume you can imagine. <laughs> and their arguments would abate, but then the arguments like sort of continued through these televisions. It was, uh, it was incredible. Uh, and uh, so there's a part of the book where I, where I kind of write about that. <laughs> you, you tell um, the story of um, Zhao, was it the, the flower seller? who's moved from rural China to try to make it in, in Shanghai. And there's a really um, fascinating uh, passage and experience with, with her sons and how she's trying to manage their lives. Tell, tell us about her story. So Zhao Shiling owns a flower shop uh, at the end of the street. And uh, she's from Shandong province. She grew up in a coal mining village. And uh, she grew up in uh, a town that is very close to Confucius's hometown. And a lot of the traditional values that, that are tied to Confucius are, are very strong in her hometown. Namely, that women are there to make children, uh, preferably boys, and uh, to work in the house. Uh, and that's what she did. Uh, her husband, a coal miner, uh, was not very kind uh, to her. Um, he would often hit her um, because it was accepted that's what people did in this village. Um, and, uh, but Zhao uh, was a, a very uh, ambitious woman. And, uh, in 1992, when Deng Xiaoping uh, was calling for all Chinese to move to the coast to make money for the first time, this was really a shocker to many Chinese. It was almost like, you know, they're just releasing the floodgates because so many people just wanted that uh, affirmation from someone on top to make money. <clears throat> he did that during his uh, tour of southern China in 1992, and Zhao heeded that call. Uh, without the permission of her husband, she just took off. She went to Shanghai, started working at a factory to assemble televisions. Um, when she first left, there were rumors in her village among the women um, that she was a prostitute, that she had left to, to work in a massage parlor. Um, and after uh, uh, she had heard that when she came back, and after the, the, ne the second year uh, for Chinese New Year when she came back, because you know, Chinese come back once a year, um, she wore her factory uniform home to prove to everyone that she was not working in a massage parlor, mm. uh, that in fact she was working honestly. And not only that, she was making more money than her husband was. Mm. 
And uh, that second year that she came back, she brought her eldest son with her um, because she wanted him to have a chance at growing up in a big city like Shanghai, uh, surrounded by the ideas that, that, that Shanghai has. She made enough money to start her own flower shop, and meanwhile, her son was doing very well in school. He was acing every test. He was first in his class. He had won uh, national uh, academic competitions. He was on track to, to go to uh, one of China's best colleges, either in Shanghai or in Beijing. Um, but because they are migrant workers and they do not have what's known as the household registration, for Shanghai, and, and this is a system in China that's been around for, for you know, actually, what's been it, it started uh, hundreds and thousands of years ago, but the communists resurrected it to control the economy, to make sure that agriculture and industrial sectors were separated. This is known as the hukou system in China, and it's a system by which it's uh, many people call it an in internal passport system. So, if you if you, your hukou basically says you were, your ancestral village is listed on there, and that means that wherever your hometown is, you have to go to high school there, you're gonna have to take the National College Entrance Examination if you wanna go to college, and any sort of complicated healthcare that you need to have done needs to be done there. Wow. You're not gonna get it done anywhere else. Wow. So this kid has to go back to the rural village to go to school even though he's yeah, and so when it came time for him to leave, he left thinking that he would do really well because he's this big shot city kid. Well, in fact, it's much more difficult to pass the National College Entrance Examination in a place like Shandong Province where they're from because there are more people to sift through. Mm. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of people that live in that province. And so uh, the, the kids that make it, there are fewer and fewer. The, you, your chances are much less. So that means that the preparation for that test, which is what high school basically is in China, is a big test prep class, uh, is much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so when he gets there, he quickly realizes this. His teacher actually, the first day of school, he gives the teacher the textbook that he was using in Shanghai, and the teacher held up the book, and, and, he's, and he pointed to the worst kid in class who was sitting in the background, and he said, you'd be the number one student in Shanghai. Everyone starts laughing, and he realized very quickly that this is going to be a harsh environment, yeah. but it's also going to be an environment that he's not going to thrive in. Yeah. Um, he ends up dropping out of school. This kid who, I think in Shanghai, would have uh, been one of the top students. Um, and he comes back to Shanghai, uh, a migrant worker, uh, just like his mother. And uh, the book picks up there uh, with him living with his mother, trying to figure out what to do, and his mother incredibly guilt-ridden, but at the same time, uh, this woman has so much positivity uh, that she keeps dreaming up ideas for him, and namely, one of her biggest ideas is to marry this boy off, uh, which he does not comply with in <laughs> any way uh, whatsoever. How much resentment is there in China about uh, this household registration system? Yeah, I think that, so, if you, if you consider that um, there are around 300 to 400 million Chinese um, that have moved from their hometowns to the big city that do not hold hukou in the new cities where they live, um, this is a big issue. 40% uh, of Shanghai does not have hukou for Shanghai. Um, in Shanghai, if, if you, depending on who you talk to, um, uh, if you ask them, what are the biggest problems in China? 
They're not gonna say democracy. They're not gonna say, oh, our internet is censored. They're not gonna say all these things that you know, Western media focus on so tightly. They're gonna say huko. That is the biggest problem because it creates an underclass. It's almost um, Chinese sociologists have compared it to the apartheid system in South Africa, saying that basically you've got two classes of people in China. You have the urban consumer class, and then you have the non-huko holding uh, migrant class. So who why, do are, they, why do they do it? Why do they persist with it? Part of the reason that the government does this is that it does not want... China is, you know, we have to remember, China is a developing country. It has around 600 million consumers that are in the middle class or upper middle class that can buy things. But then it has another 700 or 800 million people that have not made it yet. Um, that are still out there in rural China or are working in big cities without hukou. Uh, and these folks are, are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, so the government is very worried that if it were to reform the system to the point where it's completely open, that you would have a surge of people from the countryside coming into the biggest cities of, the, of, 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 of China and forming shanty towns around the cities like you would have in Brazil. Or, or India or other places uh, that have similar problems that China has. So in, in effect, it's, it's really an effort to prevent that from happening, to maintain social stability, which I think is one of the largest uh, concerns of, of the Communist Party right now. One of the other things that really struck me about your book, and you, you wove the history into this uh, really nicely, I thought, um, but the experience of the characters, or in some cases, the appearance, who were sent away for re-education uh, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, tell us about that and the conditions that they would have been faced with. Yeah, this was one of the, this is one of the narratives in the book that when I did the, the radio series, this is when the publishers started writing because it was this story that I think captured their imaginations quite a bit and it was a fantastic story. I have uh, a couple of friends in Shanghai who restore old homes in the former French concession where this book is based and they make a habit of going to junk shops, uh, antique shops. And at one of these antique shops, they found uh, on, a, on a pedestal, they found this shoebox that was full of old letters that was for sale. And they thought that was really interesting. There was more than 100 letters, and so they bought it. All of these letters were addressed to the street that I was profiling in my radio series, and so they gave, they, they lent the letters to me. Um, and I, I went through these letters. They're, they're letters that, that uh, go from 1957 to the mid-1990s. They're from uh, a husband to his wife. The husband, in 1957, was arrested uh, as a capitalist. Um, he owned a factory. He uh, fabricated silicon steel. And when the state took over all the factories, he was arrested and sent to a labor camp uh, in Qinghai province near Tibet. And he toiled away there uh, at one of China's largest labor camps. Uh, a place where nearly half the people died, actually, from 57 to 61 from the Great Famine, mm. because these camps, of course, you know, were not, they did not have much food. And so these letters are fascinating. You know, this is a time in China during the Mao years that um, is written about quite a bit, both on, uh, you know, mostly by Westerners, but also on the Chinese side, which is more official kind of propagandistic history. But it was interesting to have this, these raw artifacts uh, of history, uh, these letters. So they're just kind of the husband toiling away, the wife in a house on the street, left with seven children and no salary. 
uh, during the poorest time and the most absolutely poverty-stricken time in Chinese, uh, recent Chinese history. Um, she ha because of the famine, she has to give away the youngest daughter to another family out in the countryside that has food. Um, and then the youngest son, who's the youngest child in the family, born the year that he was arrested, is the focal point of the entire family because there's only one son. And so all, a lot of the letters kind of chronicle this son's uh, growth you know, over the years. So after reading these letters, I was, I was fascinated by this. I, I visited the house where they lived to, in, the, in the hopes that they might still be there. I knocked on the door and, and a woman answered and, and uh, she said, uh, no, I'm not that person, but she said, they're my landlords. And I said, well, can I talk to them? She said, well, I, I don't know. You, you're going to have to call them. You're going to have to find who they are. She wouldn't give me their number. She said, but they've moved to New York City. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And so I went back to my office and did a bunch of telephone directory searches. I figured that they probably moved to Flushing, which is uh, a part of Queens where most recent Chinese immigrants will move. I was right, and I found, I found the son and he had moved with his mother, who was still alive. The father had passed away. Um, they had moved in 2008, and they had won the U.S. visa lottery, which is probably the most difficult or the <laughs> just random way you could get a visa for, for the United States. And um, he had been working as an engineer in, in, in Shanghai, and now he was starting over in his 50s. His mother was, was, was in her 80s, and she had Alzheimer's. And so he was taking care of her, collecting food stamps, getting Medicare um, and on welfare, um, working at an assembly plant in Long Island City, repairing old cell phones uh, on an assembly line full of Chinese people. So here he was doing a job that was more, more typical of coastal China than anywhere else. And so he, here he is in, in America living this crazy existence where, but the one thing that, that he looked forward to each day was that he would take free English classes at the Flushing Public Library. And that turned into an obsession with him. And soon, soon enough, he quit his job, and he started going full-time trying to get his GED, which is the equivalency of a diploma, a high school diploma in America. Um, and so by, by, his, by 58 years old, uh, Wang, Wang Shui-Song, had gotten his uh, high school diploma. And uh, by, by the end of the book, he's, he's, uh, looking, um, he's looking to get married, and he's also looking to go to college. Uh, and he was one of the most inspirational people that, that I met in the course of uh, reporting this book. Do people talk and openly discuss some of those things uh, that we were talking about there, the famine and the re-education and the labor camps? I mean, is, is there an open acceptance uh, of that period of history, or is it still a pretty touchy subject? <laughs> There's certainly not in, inside of a family. Um, you know, m my wife, Lenora, she, she's a, she comes from a Chinese-American family, and her grandparents had to flee China, otherwise they would have been executed because they were, they were landlords, um, and they were also in the Kuomintang. Um, even her grandparents, had a hard time talking about that time. And uh, to this day, they don't know a lot. There's a lot of secrets that were never told. So within families, I think that the Chinese tradition is to uh, hide a lot of these most traumatic memories. 
uh, in the hopes that they will be extinguished forever. Um, it's an interesting thing, but I think, you know, it sort of makes sense to me. I don't even think it's that Chinese in some ways, because, you know, I remember my, my grandfather served in World War II. He fought against the Japanese on Mindanao Island in the Philippines. Um, he was in charge of a flamethrower. Um, he had a very tough job. He had, you know, he had, you know, he saw a lot of action. Um, he never talked about it with anybody in my family either, because the things that he saw were horrible. Um, and I think that the people that lived through the 1950s in China, through the famine, through the Cultural Revolution, through these violent political campaigns where um, you had to make very difficult decisions about turning your neighbors in or being killed yourself, um, turning your teachers in, turning your parents in, um, these are horrible things. And I think that it's difficult for many people to share these memories, especially with their family. Now, with a foreigner, I think it's a little different because uh, I don't have that connection, that family connection. And so some of my, some of my uh, subjects in this book did talk about these times with me after I got to know them pretty well. Um, and the, especially Auntie Fu, who, um, and I, I began to realize her, her hatred for the Communist Party and socialism and the way that it was executed in, in, in China comes from her own personal background of um, having a father who uh, was basically starved to death uh, purposely uh, as punishment uh, for speaking out against the ridiculous uh, policies of the Great Leap Forward um, in the 1950s. Um, she saw her, her father basically starved to death, her uncle executed. Um, she, she saw things that uh, immediately uh, made her realize that this was not a system that she believed in in any way. Why was there a famine at that time? What were the reasons? Well, the Great Leap Famine came after the Great Leap Forward campaign uh, that Mao uh, started in the late 1950s in China. He um, wanted China to be the largest steel-making country on the planet um, to supersede Great Britain at the time, which was the biggest steel-maker at that time. And his goal, and concurrently, China was collectivizing agriculture at this time. So um, you would go from these individual farms that people were used to farming, and suddenly you were supposed to be collectively uh, plowing fields that were for the collective. You were not allowed to have your own kitchen. Uh, you had to eat in public kitchens. You were not allowed to have even utensils in your home because those were going to be controlled by the party. So the food that was given to you was given to you by the party. Now, uh, at the same time, the, the steel uh, requirement that, that was, was passed down it whipped people up into a frenzy thinking that people could, could make steel, and so they melted down their pots and pans uh, thinking that, that steel could be made from this, which is a ridiculous idea. And, uh, they wiped out entire forests trying to uh, feed fires that would go on for days and weeks to get to the temperature where they could melt metal. Uh, and so you had environmental degradation on an unprecedented scale. Uh, you had people wasting their time making uh, this is kind of this awful metal clumps that, that weren't steel at all. And then you had collectivization, which uh, w was a problem. But then you also had government officials on a local level who were being pressured to report uh, grain output 
that they were not achieving at all. And uh, they would report that, and then the central party would take a certain percentage of that grain that they were reporting, and in many cases, it was all their grain because they were misreporting all of it. Right. So and that led to an, in, an incredible famine that killed 36 million people. Yeah. 36 million people. Yeah, it was, it was uh, one of the worst uh, atrocities ever uh, you know, on, on the planet, really, in the yeah. history of, uh, of, of the world. Yeah. Um, and it's not reported on very much. And actually, most Chinese, you know, this is, this is a, a part of, that, of Chinese history that officially does not exist in China. Um, it's something that is very sensitive. And when uh, a man named Yang Zhezhang, who was a Xinhua reporter, who had access to official documents from that time and put it into a book called Tombstone that was published in 2008, and I think should have won almost every award given to books. He didn't win any of them, but it should have won the Nobel Prize, I think, for the reporting that he did. Uh, and he waited until he was very old to do this because he thought that they were going to come for him. Mm. Um, this book is an incredible account of what happened. Um, and uh, it was banned immediately in inside of China. Mm. Um, but I think, but it's interesting, the figures in Yang's book are not disputed officially mm. uh, by the party because he, got, he had access to all of official data. It must be incredibly bewildering too for those people. You've got a character in the book who's, um, you say, would have been a, a, a multimillionaire in Shanghai. Uh, if he'd lived at another time. Well, yeah, that's, um, the, that's the man who's arrested as a capitalist, yeah, uh, um, Wang Ming. He, you know, his, his letters, you know, I, 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 I met in the course of reporting for this book, and, and one of the minor characters is a man who served time with Wang um, at the same prison camp. Um, and when I, when I showed him the letters that he wrote, I mean, because towards the end of his stay at the prison, he was writing letters to local officials in Shanghai detailing how he could single-handedly overhaul the silicon steel recycling, uh, you know, manufacturing capabilities of Shanghai. And, and these, these letters were fascinating. I mean, he, he obviously, uh, he was sort of like a Jack Ma type of guy. Yeah. I mean, this guy was, he was, he was socially adept. He constantly wanted to improve himself. He had an engineer's mind. Um, he, was, he was a genius. He would be, if he, and this, this gentleman who had served with him, when after reading some of these letters, he said, this guy'd be a, a millionaire uh, today, if you grew up today in China. Uh, and it just depends on when you grew up. He said, we, 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 we were unfortunate. We grew up at the wrong time. So where does that leave the level of trust and relationship with the government for people in China? Do they see them, do they see the, the government representing them or do they, is it quite a, is it, is it quite a division there? No, I, I think most Chinese do not see the government really, I mean, they see the government representing China's interests abroad, certainly. And I think most Chinese are very patriotic. Um, they believe in China. And uh, they've seen the changes that China has had in the last 30 years and they're very confident by that. But I think that most young Chinese are not as familiar with the collateral damage that occurred at the beginning of this revolution, um, the foundation of, of the, the party. Um, they have no idea. It's been, it's been erased from, from the books, and they wouldn't have any idea unless they, they left and started reading about it um, once, they, once they left China. Um, so I think that in China, you know, I think that most people, I would say, are pretty confident about China's future. Um, I'm confident as well. You know, I think, I think the party has done in, 
you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I just talked about all these horrible things happening during the Mao years, but I think that the party itself has learned from those, ti from those times. And, and I think that today, even though there are some disturbing aspects to Xi Jinping's rule, I'm confident that, that China um, is on a pretty good path economically, politically less confident. And I think that most people in China, when you ask them about the government, they say, oh, that's none of my business. That's usually their answer, really? because it isn't. Because they're so far away from that. That's not any other business. As far as they're concerned, the government is just full of people who are on the make, who are trying to make money. They're using it for power, influence, or money. And is that, is that true in your experience? Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely been true. Uh, and I think that uh, Xi Jinping, on the face of it, is trying to change that. Yeah, because we hear quite a lot about his crackdown on corruption. And, and I think that crackdown is true, and I think it, it comes from a good place. I, I do think, you know, he, he gets a lot of criticism for using this to, uh, you know, get his enemies out of power, and he certainly has done that. But the scale and the scope of this campaign is so great that I don't think any leader would do this because you're putting yourself at risk when you do something like this. There have been uh, hundreds of thousands of officials that have uh, had violations or have been thrown out of the party. That's a lot of people, and that's a lot of powerful people who know the secrets of the party and know some dirty secrets themselves. Um, so I think that Xi Jinping has made it more difficult for himself by waging this campaign. I think it's going to make it difficult for him to leave power uh, if and when that time comes, and I'm not sure he will. Mm. Mm. I want to talk a little bit, we're going to open it up for questions um, in a few minutes, um, but I, I'm interested in exploring how you got these stories and how you forged these relationships with people and I guess how you, how you won, their, won their trust, really, and how uh, it, it was received when you, when you did tell the stories. Well, part of it was when I was reporting the, the radio series, um, I, you know, I had met some of these folks just walking up and down my street anyway. And then I arrived with a very large microphone. <laughs> and, you know, people could make a decision at that point, do I talk to him or, or, or not? You know, this is obviously a foreign journalist. Uh, and usually when I arrived, I would tell them, I'm doing a series, um, I, I want to focus on you. And usually when you say that to someone who's Chinese, they say, why am I important? Why, why are you, why, why me? Why are you, why are you picking on me, right? And I said, well, well I'm, I'd like to do just normal stories about Xing, which in, in, in Chinese means uh, just common people. Mm. And you know, after I gave them uh, my talk, um, they would think about it and, and they would say, okay. You know, or they would say, you know, no thanks, you know, uh, not interested. Uh, and so I would say I had a pretty, I had a pretty good success rate for China because I don't have access in China for a foreign correspondent. It's kind of difficult sometimes. So I, had, I think I had a 50% success rate, uh, which was pretty good. Um, and then the people that I spoke with, I did. I just asked questions about their personal history. I was an economics reporter at the time. So in a way, I think um, being an economics reporter in China um, is easier because when I come to talk to folks, um, I don't have these list of questions about, you know, this, 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 this. It's, it's mostly, my first question is, um, so how much do you make? And in China, that's, that's usually a question that I'm asked uh, before I can get that question out of my mouth. Is that uh, a comfortable question? Absolutely comfortable question, yeah. That's, uh, money is really? completely comfortable in China. Yeah, really? no, that's, that's a, 
Yeah, yeah that's, it's very easy to talk about that. <laughs> so you don't ask uh, where, where someone's from or what they do, you ask how much money they make. I'll ask where they're from, but I mean, usually I'll ask, what, what, what do you make? Uh, you know, how much does this business make? You know, how are you doing? And that's a very comfortable topic for most Chinese, especially shop owners. They like talking about that mm. um, because they're always thinking about it. And they're asking everyone that themselves because they're trying to figure out how to make more. And, uh, and so uh, starting with that question is, is, is a good entry into good ice a lot of, what's that? Try it. It's a good icebreaker. It's a good icebreaker. Yeah. How much do you make? <laughs> um, and it can lead to a lot of, you know, a lot of sensitive issues too. You know, it leads to politics. It leads to, you know, how much did you make 10 years ago? I wasn't making that much because there was this mm. campaign that we were, you know, and, and so, you know, things come up during that, that, that are really interesting. And, and so that helped as well. Um, the ones that I ended up, that ended up in the book, um, when I knew I was writing a book, I confronted them and asked each and every one of them, you know, I'm writing a book, how do you feel about being part of that book? Um, and a few of them said no, and so they weren't part of the book, um, but the ones who were in the book uh, obviously said yes, and uh, were okay with that. Um, Auntie Fu and Uncle Fung, uh, because of the sensitivity of what she's doing, uh, the illegality of it, actually. Um, I, I chose to use a pseudonym for both of them. Uh, they, they did not care at all, but I don't think they understood. Mm. And so I, I chose not to use their real names. Yeah. Uh, Wang Shui Song, the son of the man who was uh, arrested as a capitalist, I also changed their names uh, out of a request from Wang himself mm. in New York who said, I. I've had enough problems in my life. I don't need any more. <laughs> Thank you so much. Can I... Um... Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob. Can I also... Um, can I also... Um... Can I also give my thanks to Asia New Zealand Foundation, the Asia New Zealand Foundation who have been supporting Rob. So thank you to them too. And thank you all for your great questions and, and thanks for listening. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.